It's a real honor. It's a real privilege to be sharing today. I, I feel excited because there's a theme this morning of joy and rejoicing, and the Lord has told me to speak about rejoicing. So I, I feel encouraged. When Fee opened up the meeting talking about joy, I was like, ah, oh, sweet. I heard God right, and that always feels good. So um, if you want to open up your Bibles, we're going to be uh, looking at Philippians 4, verse, uh, verse 4. We've been in, in the States for Thanksgiving, and it's the first time we've had American Thanksgiving. And I love it. We don't do it in England because we're not as thankful as you. We're a little, we're a little bit more cynical. We're a little more reserved. And there is less of a culture of thankfulness in England. I have to be honest. When I'm here, I get excited about the big things of life, the big things that God's doing. You have a culture in the States of dreaming big. And when I come here, I get that. And I think a big part of it is an attitude of gratitude that's carried in your culture. And so after Thanksgiving, I was just thinking about it and meditating on it and reflecting on Thanksgiving. And I went for a walk around Dan and Fee's house. It was a beautiful park. And I was walking around and I just started thanking the Lord for things in my life. And I don't know if you've ever done it, but I started and 20 minutes later, I was still going. You start thanking God for what he's doing in your life and suddenly you start seeing everything else. And I'm thinking, wow, I've been walking for like half an hour and I'm still going. And so the Lord just took me to this scripture and I love it. Let's read it. It's Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Father, I just thank you that we have the opportunity to dive into your word today, Lord. I thank you that your word is living and active. It's like a double-edged sword that pierces through bone and marrow. Lord, I thank you that by getting into your scriptures, your scriptures get into us. Lord, I thank you that we're going to leave this place thankful. We're going to leave this place with a bigger vision for our lives. We're going to leave this place with a greater perspective of what you're doing in our midst, Lord. We love you and we're so grateful for your scriptures this morning. Amen. This is, a, this is a powerful scripture when you know the context. It's one of Paul's letters that he wrote from the prisons of Rome. And uh, he's writing to the church in Philippi. And many of you might notice, but the Philippian church is one of the smallest New Testament gatherings. It was a small and quite vulnerable congregation. There wasn't many of them, but Paul loves them. And if you read the book of Philippians, it's not a long letter. You realize Paul's love for the church in Philippi. He says that they're the most generous church that he writes to and that they're a joyful church. And you can tell his affection for them. But he's writing from prison in darkness and in chains to a church which is small and vulnerable and nearing the realm of persecution. They're in Macedonia, not too far from Thessalonia, where Caesar is king. And every time that they lift up the name of Jesus, they do so by risking their lives. And there isn't one point in this letter where Paul says, you need to escape Philippi or you need to change your context or your circumstance. This letter to the church in Philippi is Paul urging them to realign their perspective. And as I read this letter, I read through the whole, the whole letter. It's only four chapters. I'm not trying to sound impressive. It's not Leviticus. Uh, but I, I read through it the other day, start to finish. And I just imagine, and we have to do this with the, old, the New Testament letters. I imagine Paul writing this letter to me today. Dear Joshua and Kara, rejoice. 
in the Lord always, again, I will say rejoice. And I realize that in my life and in my culture, especially in England, we don't do a lot of rejoicing. So I actually Googled the word because I wanted to get a deeper understanding. To rejoice is to give an exuberant, ecstatic, euphoric expression of joy. How often have you seen that? There's a difference between happy and rejoicing. An exuberant, ecstatic, euphoric expression of joy. And so I started thinking about when in my life I've seen rejoicing. And I remember the Saturdays I used to watch football with my father. We had a season ticket and we went and watched Bradford City play. And every time a goal was scored, five, 6,000 men with their beer bellies swaying in the wind, baptizing each other with bottles of beer and pies flying everywhere, started rejoicing. Their hands to the heavens, shouting in praise and exultation, a euphoric expression of joy when that goal went in. The stadium erupted. And the thing is, Bradford, I don't know how many people know about Bradford. Put your hand up, because I, I know some of you have been to Keithley before, right? Some people? Yeah, all right. So, so it's, it's, it's in, the, in the north of England, and it's a notoriously known town for its depravity. I grew up in an area where most of my friends were on council estates with single-parent households, huge social breakdown, loss of poverty, massive racial tension. It's the most populated place in the country for welfare, where people are on benefits. There isn't a lot of good things happening in Bradford. In fact, every person who went to that football match woke up in the morning with some level of depression or despair, statistically. But when they got to the game, and when they saw someone score a goal, it just didn't matter. You wouldn't know that it was a stadium of men who were struggling with life as they expressed a euphoric exultation of joy. But in reflection on it, I realized that when that goal was scored and those men erupted in, in praise, they rejoiced for someone else's victory as if it was their own. This young 20-year-old fit guy playing football scores the goal, and they erupt in this euphoric expression as if it was them. And you can look at them and know they probably never played a full day of football in their life, and they probably will never play a full day of football in their life, but they they express their thankfulness for the guy's goal as if they had done it themselves. And Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say, rejoice. That's what it looks like when you rejoice in someone else. You claim their victory as if it was your own. You start being grateful for someone else's capability, capacity, as if it was your own. And the Lord just started speaking to me about this. He said, Josh, when you start rejoicing in my victory, you start getting faith for your own. When those men left the football match, I hope that even for an hour, just the endorphins that they had let off through rejoicing, they might start looking at their life a little different. And it's so temporary. But Paul is writing to this church that's in persecution, and he's saying, you don't have to run away. You don't have to change your context. Just rejoice in the Lord, put your eyes on the victory of Jesus, and it'll start regaining you some land and a different perspective. That's what will happen. There's a very similar passage in, in, uh, in Thessalonians 5.19. Paul's writing to, to the church in Thessalonia, and he says, you probably know it, pray without ceasing. Uh, give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And then he says, don't quench the spirit, and don't despise prophecy. And I, I don't know about you, but I've always read that passage as this kind of legal tightrope. Do X, Y, and Z to ensure that you never quench the spirit. In, in fact, growing up, I would think, you know, if I didn't like the sermon or, you know, I didn't enjoy the music or I didn't pray every day or I didn't read my Bible long enough, I could 
potentially be quenching the spirit. And I really in- endorsed it as this sort of legal uh, tightrope that I walked on. And then I read it the other day. And you know when the Holy Spirit, you know when you invite the Holy Spirit into your times reading the word, it gets a lot more exciting. And I just said, Holy Spirit, will you help me understand this scripture? And I read it again. And this is how I read it. Um, Give thanks in all things. Pray without ceasing. This is the will of Christ Jesus for you. Josh, don't miss out on the party. Don't quench the spirit. Don't miss out on the party. Don't miss out on what Jesus is doing amongst you. Don't miss out on what Jesus has done and how it's impacting and changing the life you're living. And you don't miss out on the party by becoming aware and confessing what you're going through. My wife, can you stand up, Kara? People haven't seen you yet. This is my beautiful wife, Kara. Kara's amazing. Kara's a counselor. And um, I have seen her walk through tremendous healing. And, and she helps me know more about myself than I know about myself. She leads me into the depths of what it is to discover healing for trauma. And I watch her sit with people for hours on end and lead them into safe places of healing. You don't miss out on the party by acknowledging what you've been through. You don't miss out on the party by being aware of the trauma or the pain or the heartbreak or the persecution or the fact that there's a fly in the ointment and this world is off tilter and it's a little bit broken. You miss out on the party when you let that pain have the last word. And I, I, I think that's what Paul's trying to say. Don't quench the spirit and don't despise prophecy because prophecy is the announcement of what God has done, what he's doing, and what he's going to do. Don't despise the way that hope is trying to get into the room and say, this isn't how the story ends. This isn't how it's over. The best is yet to come. Keep going. Keep running. Keep moving forward. Don't despise prophecy because prophecy is the announcement that the Holy Spirit's still on the move. The church, us, this body of people, we gotta be the uh, we gotta be the the hum, the hum of something better in our society. This baseline of something better on the distance, a song that's still being sung despite the darkness, a story that isn't over. The conversation we're having is a conversation about a story that still hasn't finished despite how bleak it gets, amen? Despite how bad it gets. And, and it isn't denial. It isn't denial of pain. It's right to feel pain. It's right to acknowledge pain. It's just wrong to allow it to rob you of the victory in Jesus. That's why, that's why Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Don't rejoice. Don't even rejoice in the gift. Don't rejoice in the breakthrough. Don't rejoice in the gift. Rejoice in the gift giver. Rejoice in the ultimate victory that Christ has won for us. Rejoice in what he has done. Rejoice in him, not your promotion, not even your relationships, not even the best things that you can think about yourself. Because it is like everything temporary. But to rejoice in Jesus is to rejoice in a victory that just keeps getting better. Amen. The resurrection isn't something that happened. The resurrection is something that is happening. The resurrection happened so that we can have the faith that God is continually reinventing now. The resurrection is reestablished when we allow God to reinvent the present. We wouldn't be able to change our current situations if the resurrection hadn't happened. But we will never change our current situations if we think of the resurrection as a historical piece of moment in time that was 2,000 years ago. There's, um, there's a story that I just want to share real quick. I was at my dad's house five, six weeks ago, maybe a little longer. And we just went for a couple nights and uh, we're sat having dinner. And my dad just starts telling me about his friend who uh, was recently diagnosed with motor neuron disease. I don't know if you know what it is, but it's this horrible, suffocating, paralyzing disease that slowly just takes over the body. And, um, 
And in the same year that this man was diagnosed, his wife left him. And my dad's just telling me the story. And you know when you feel the heart of God for someone? And your heart, like even just thinking about it now, your heart just starts breaking for them. And, and uh, I just said to dad, you know, he lives around the corner. Can we just go pray for him? And so we went around to his house. And as we're walking, my dad just continues to tell the story of this guy's life. And it's just worse and worse. Everything that could have gone wrong has gone wrong. And so when we knock on the door, I imagine this man who's beaten down, you know, just bent over, disillusioned, disappointed to answer the door. But he opens the door with this huge smile on his face. And he welcomes us in, and the, the disease is already slowing down his, his muscles, and so he's kind of, he sort of like stutters along, and he brings us into his home, and it's this beautiful, like, tiny little flat, and then he goes into the kitchen, and he makes us a cup of tea, and we sit down, and his speech is already, you know, beginning to slow down, and he makes us a cup of tea, and we sit down, and we start drinking the tea, and just as he sits down, he looks at us, and he starts just telling us about what he's been reading in the Word. Like he just starts speaking, he just starts talking to us. But he was in the Gospels, and he just starts talking. And I'm suddenly sitting at this guy's feet like he's a rabbi. Like he's just talking, and, and we just start having this conversation about Jesus, the rabbi, and it's beautiful. And an hour and a half goes by like that. And then I think to get up and go, I forget that we're here to pray for the guy. And we, we get up, and then we sit back down, and we say, hey, can we pray for you? I forgot because you don't look like what you're going through. I forgot about the ailment. You know, when Jesus heals the blind man, he looks at him and he says, what can I do for you? Because he doesn't see the man by his obvious ailment. And, and, I, and I felt in this moment, this guy had learned that that's how Jesus was responding to him. So that's he resp- how he responded to the world, not as a victim of a disease, but as a child of God, as a son. Oh, he was living in the victory of Christ. And so we prayed for him and we declared healing of him because Jesus paid for his sickness. And I walked away and I thought, man, Josh, you got to rethink everything. If a man who's gone through that much doesn't look like what he's been through, that's what it looks like to rejoice in the Lord. And then Paul's, again, I say rejoice because sometimes you spend a day rejoicing and then something happens and you stop rejoicing. So Paul says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice because as soon as you start rejoicing, you've got to start over again. You know, it's recondensed. We talk about what it is to be fully human because I think we, there's, a, there's a loftier expression of humanity than what we settle for. We're more than flesh and bones. We are walking pieces of eternity. Heaven is in us. That's why Paul says, he says, let your, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Because when your focus is, focus is on Jesus and the victory of Christ, you start being the most reasonable person in the room. Dan always has this phrase, uh, he who has the most, in, no, he who has the most hope has the most influence. And I love that. So Paul's saying when your focus is on Jesus and on what he's accomplished, somehow, all of a sudden, when you walk into the room, you're the person everyone needs to speak to the most. To be reasonable is to have an acute kind of just fair standard of what should happen. He's a reasonable man. He's level-headed. He knows what should and shouldn't be done in this situation. Let's go to him. We become reasonable when we live in rejoicing because we have a better standard to offer the world. Everyone's waiting for the answer. I don't know if you've noticed it. Whether you're pantheist, agnostic, atheist, or theist, everyone's searching for the answer to themselves, to the madness and the chaos that we live in. And I believe Paul's saying to the church in Philippi, everything's going a little crazy at the moment. But if you focus on what Jesus has done, you will have the most reasonable response to give anyone looking for an answer. But if you don't, you'll only have flesh and bones to give them. You won't have spirit and soul to offer them. 
Is this making sense? You know, we, we, we went for a walk the other night, and we were walking along, and, and uh, Dan, Fee, and Karen and I, and we just saw this guy out of nowhere just collapse onto the floor. He hit his head with his massive bang, and so we just ran up to him, and his friend was checking his pulse. He wasn't drinking or anything. He just collapsed, and we were sat there just trying to, like, you know, keep him conscious, I guess. He was just out of it, and um, then we just started praying for him. And he came too really quick. And I don't know, maybe it was a coincidence or maybe it wasn't. But I get this sense of when, when, you're, when you're aligned with what Jesus can do and when you're aligned with the fact that heaven is all around us, you start just offering more to any situation. Jesus says in Luke, uh, Luke 17, he says, you, it won't be evidenced by what you see around you. It won't be confirmed with signs because the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is in our midst. We're walking pieces of heaven's real estate. Everywhere we go, heaven goes with us. And I think as a body and as a church, we need to really appreciate that. Whatever you think about yourself, God's found his resting place in you. God has found you worthy enough to position his image so that where you go, you take a bit of heaven. That is blowing my mind. I don't know if that, if that resonates with you, but that is, the kingdom of heaven is within you. I could spend the rest of my life meditating on that one passage. Wherever you go, heaven goes with you. But if our focus isn't on what Jesus has done, if our focus isn't on his kingdom, the coming king, we don't have anything to offer people other than what the best minds of the world does. Because he says, let your reasonableness be known to, to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Yeah, very good word. The Lord is at hand. And sometimes in my life, and maybe you can relate, sometimes I have this image of God being behind me. Or I have this image of God being ahead of me. Like I have to go back and deal with everything to meet him back in the guilt and the shame. And I've got to go back, 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 back to be able to meet with God. Or I've got to become someone in the future who will be worthy enough walking with God. I've got to become someone down the line, this other image of myself for God to really do something with me or to really enjoy him. And Paul says, no, the Lord is at hand. He's right here. He's never left the room. He never will leave the room. He's right by your side. If we don't believe that we have a God in our present, we don't have anything to offer our present. If we believe God's in our past or God's in the future, we don't have anything to change the now. I believe in culture change. Do you? I believe we're here actually change culture. That we're here to actually change the world. Not metaphorically, but we're meant to actually change the world in every sphere of society. And when we don't believe that the Lord is at hand. You know, to be at hand, to be by your side, but also at your service. I'm at hand. What do you need? I'm getting this revelation as, I, as I'm digging into this scripture of actually, Jesus is walking with me wherever I go. The resurrection changed everything. So I have the opportunity to reinvent my present at any time, anywhere. I can reinvent the present circumstance of relationship, the present circumstance of my work life, of my health life. I am the most powerful person in my life because the Lord is at hand. I'm not waiting for me to catch up with him. He's not waiting for me to go back. He's right here, right now, wherever you go, the rabbi walks with you. And there is healing in his fingertips. And we should be a culture of rejoicing should live in a culture of rejoicing because when you're aware that Jesus is with you, things just start getting better. Things just start changing. changing. In, in, in Luke 19, 
uh, Jesus is walking along. He says his disciples are with him. And, you know, some, we, we always think of the 12 disciples, but there was times where Jesus was hanging around with 72, 120. He had a big squad. He was rolling deep sometimes. Where he went, men were following him. And at th- this point, it says in Luke 19, he's walking along, and, and his disciples are dancing and singing because of the signs that they've seen him do. So they're walking down the street, and they're dancing and singing a cappella. There's no beat playing. They're just dancing. They're just so excited. They've seen what Jesus has done. And then the cynics, the Pharisees, the, the lovers of the law come up to him, and he says, Rabbi, rebuke them. It's undignified. And you know what Jesus says? He says, if I tell them to be silent, the very rocks that they stand on will start praising. And I read that. And you know what the Lord said to me? And it wasn't, it wasn't hey, Josh, you're doing this. Well done. It was a little rebuke, actually. It, genuinely. He says to me, Josh, when you care more about your dignity than the discipline of a life filled with rejoicing, the ground you stand on has more purpose than you. The ground you're walking on is fulfilling your God-given calling to give gratitude to the King of Kings. And in England, maybe this doesn't happen here, but in England, there's a, there's a cynicism that I fall into. There's a skepticism. There's an unwillingness to pronounce that Jesus is doing something and give him the credit for it. I, I know the times in my life that I'll rubbish things. or I have times in my life that I'll, I'll explain things away or times in my life where I'll try and take the credit. And in that moment, the very piece of ground that I'm standing on is breathing with more purpose than me. Inanimate objects, rocks and stones are carrying something that I was meant to carry. And it is, it's a word of correction. It's, it's a strong word that Jesus gave to the Pharisees, and I think we've got to hear it for ourselves sometimes. If you don't give him praise, and if you care more about your dignity than a discipline of rejoicing in your life, you don't have the purpose that you were born to live with. If you're searching for purpose this morning, I encourage you to start rejoicing. I think praising leads us to purpose. I think when we start praising Jesus, we start seeing ourselves more clearly. We start seeing him more clearly. We start feeling like our shoulders are going back and our chest is going out and we're a little bit more confident. Does anyone relate to that? But sometimes it takes us to get to Sunday to do it. And it's what we could be doing Monday through Saturday, just praising God and lifting him up. And when you hear someone who's down and depressed and desperate, it's not to rubbish it away. It's not to try and override their emotion and what they're going through but it is to hold your ground and even when you're in that situation to hold your ground rejoice again I say rejoice I want to be like Peter the man with motor neurons disease I don't want to look like what I've been through we, we, we got some some of our best friends are they're our age 27 and she's she's been diagnosed with breast cancer their son was born with down syndrome all in the space of a year and they've just had to learn she says I've had to realize a different kind of perfect it's not the perfect that I, that I saw when I was a teenager. It's a different kind of perfect. But you would never know what they've been through. Not because she's ever denied it. We've sat with them and prayed with them and cried with them. But her focus is so on the victory of Christ. She just isn't defined by it. And we're going to see her healed. But I believe a big part of her healing, as she's testified, is her lifestyle of rejoicing. Just to go off track for a quick second. You know when Noah, he releases a dove and a raven. Do you remember that? And to see if there's land anywhere. The dove comes back, but the raven doesn't. I remember reading that and hearing someone say, you know, ravens will land on death, but doves won't. And there was so much death. Imagine it. The whole earth had been consumed. Bodies, animals, dead trees, dead plants. That the raven was happy to land on, but the dove would not land on death. 
And it's an interesting thought to think the Holy Spirit is still hovering over the waters of our souls looking for life to land on. Where can I land? Where is there a runway for me to rest on so I can do something with this life? And if all we're offering is death, there's nowhere for him to land. That's why he's still declaring resurrection over us. Come on, wake up, be alive. I want to land on your life and do something with it that you would never imagine could happen. But you've got to be in life. You've got to be alive to it. The resurrection is for now. It's for us. But we've got to want it. Amen. We've got to want, we've got to, want to receive it. All right. Um, way off notes. Verse 6. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Wow. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. You know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but um, when Jesus talks about anxiety and worry, he's straight down the line. You know, Matthew 6 and 7, he says, I mean, I don't know about you, but one of my biggest questions in life for my mental health is how, how do I stop worrying? You don't have to put your hand up, but if you, if you know what, if you, yeah, you know, I, I, I struggle with it. I do, I struggle with worry. I get worried about things I, uh, that are irrational. There's been many times I've been up in the night worried. And I've often asked God, how do I stop worrying? So I went to the scriptures and he says, do not worry. <laughs> there, there's, 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 there's no like, I've gone to self-help guru sections at a bookstore where there's books written on it. But when it comes to Jesus, he says, don't worry. Look at the birds of the air. They don't, they don't reap. They don't sow, they don't reap. Look at the flowers of the fields. They don't toil because the Father in heaven takes care of them. How much more does he care for you? Next question. That's Jesus' response to worry. And I read it again through the lens of Jesus in John 14. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. Amen. I think worry is a way. Jesus is the way, but I think the worry is a way. Worry isn't a state of indifference. Worry is an intentional pursuit of trying to get somewhere. So you worry yourself to the destination. I'm trying to figure this situation out in my life. How do, I, how do I heal this relationship? How do I get my finances right? How do I sort this area of my life out? I'll worry myself there. I'll go, does this make sense? I'll walk down a track till I, till I find some kind of destination. And Jesus is kind of trying to get into the, the door of your mental state, and he's saying, I am the way. No one gets to the Father except through me. You've got to meditate on me. You've got to have an awareness of the land around you and how it reveals the nature of God. If you feel worried, go outside and walk and look at the air and see the birds. It's almost offensive to look at the birds of the air and hear Jesus say, look at them. They're an example for you to follow. They don't sow and they don't reap because the Father just takes care of them. So all of your earthly statistics and systems that you're trying to figure out to prevent you from worrying is actually engulfed and eclipsed by an awareness of the Father's goodness to take care of his creation. That's where we got to start. So when Paul says, you know, rejoice in all things, don't be anxious about anything. You got to remember, this is a man who sat in a prison in Rome. And I don't know if you know about the prisons in Rome, but you know how you walk along the street and there's the grates that you lift up that would go down to the sewer. The, the, the first century Roman prisons were much like that. They would be almost like cylinders that hung down from the, from the street with huge um, tin cloths over them. So you would sit in utter darkness in the sewer system of the city, in chains. Like this, this wasn't a five-star prison. There wasn't a TV in the room. He sat in darkness. It's a miracle his letters got to the churches that he wrote to when he was in chains. And he's saying, don't be anxious about anything. 
This is a man awaiting death, right into a church that know their neighbors are being persecuted. And he says, don't be anxious about anything. And I'm realizing that the areas that I most, you know, wrestle with God in is when I go back and forth with my reason to qualify my worry. You got to get in the New Testament and realize that there was never a denial of circumstance when these words were spoken. There was just such an acute awareness of Jesus. There was such an awareness that everything is temporary and resurrection is in my bones. This isn't how it ends. And when you live like that, you've got something to offer the world. Imagine those, uh, imagine those football fans. When a goal, goal goes in and everyone erupts, there's one guy while everyone's celebrating who's just saying, I can't pay my rent. Or you don't know how bad my marriage is. Or you, I can't pay my electricity bill this week. And everyone's just, everyone's just celebrating, looking at him like, what are you talking about? We're all in the same situation, but look what's going on. We just scored. And I think sometimes that's the lifestyle we got to develop, where our worry is louder than our just cheer of victory. God's like, I, I know. I'm not, you're not denying that you're going through it. But look what happened. Jesus, who knew no sin, became your sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. That's how Paul was able to say, it's no, yeah, it's real. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. So the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in what? My possessions, in my promotions, in my accolades. No, in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. That's how you live free. And I believe Paul, you know, Paul wrote this letter and he wrote Galatians and he found, if you realize it, when you read his letters, you realize this is a man with nothing to lose. He's got nothing to prove and no reputation to protect. This is a man that's free. He says at the end of Galatians chapter six, he says, for I've been crucified to the world. The world has lost interest in me and I have lost interest in the world. All I have less to boast about is Jesus. That's freedom. That's not a man who's given up his desire to change things. I mean, is there anyone more influential in the first century than Paul? Paul changed things, but he was so just unimpressed by what the world had to offer. And I think when he's writing to this little church in Philippi, just as these words, these ancient words are resonating in this room today, he's saying, just focus on the things that matter. Focus on the one thing that will change every situation that you're in. I believe the resurrection revokes our right to remain a victim. It reestablishes our role in the restoration of everything. And sometimes in my life, with my wife, we do it together. We just have to remind ourselves about the resurrection. The resurrection changed everything. And for you this morning, I hope if nothing else, you can just feel resurrection in your bones again. You can just, re you can just feel the sense that the story isn't over once again. And I love that you do Thanksgiving every year, but we're meant to do it every day as the followers of Jesus. And I think that's, just, that's really where I want to land today. I just want to encourage us as a body and as a people to, to begin moving into the rhythm of thanksgiving every day. I think we'll realize our purpose as we do it. I think we'll realize what we have to offer the world when we do it. Amen. Amen. There's one more, um, one more little thing I just want to end with. Um, we all know the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15. And uh, Jesus tells the story of two, uh, two sons, uh, a father who had two sons and as we all know, the younger son left his father's house to live a wild life. And he went to his father and he said, can I have my inheritance now? I'd rather have what you have than have a relationship with you so I can spend your wealth. And um, the father generously gives it to him. And in verse 12 of Luke 15, he says, it says, Jesus says, so the father divided his property 
between both sons. And then we all know the younger son goes away and lives this wild life. And then he comes back broken, impoverished, empty, depraved to try and seek favor in his father's eyes again. And we know the story. The father just loves him and he restores him and he reveals what kind of papa God we really have. And he brings his son back into the house. And he says, in the message version, Eugene Peterson says, uh, let's put on the best beef brisket we have. And let's have a party. Remember that, remember that word. Don't, don't miss out on the party. The father's having a party right now for us. But then in verse 28 of Luke 15, it says the older brother was outside in the fields and he was angry. And it says, so the father went out into the fields to plead with his son. And he says to the older brother, he says, come in. We're having a party for your younger son. He was dead, but now he's alive, lost, and now he's found. Why don't you come in? And in verse 28, the older brother looks into the eyes of the father and he says, I've worked for you my entire life. I've been here in your house and in your fields. And you've never even given me a goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But this young son comes back and you, 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 you cook the, the fattened calf. What kind of father are you? And I read that in the context of just trying to establish a life of rejoicing. And I felt the father say to me, despite the gold he had been given, Verse 12, the father divided his property between both sons. That means the legal and relational proceedings of giving his wealth to his older son had happened. Despite the gold he had been given, all he saw was a goat that he lacked. Despite the gold he had been given, all he could see is a goat that he lacked. And I felt the father say to me, Josh, this is what's robbing you of a lifestyle of joy. You keep seeing what you don't have instead of seeing what I've done. In Jesus, our inheritance was delivered to us, into the bank account, everything paid for in full, everything you ever need to step into your purpose, everything you'll ever need to change the world is in your account today, inside of you. Amen. Let's stand. I'd love to pray for you guys as we close. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're in this room. I thank you that you're in this place. Father, I thank you that throughout this morning's meeting, your kindness has just been revealed to us in new ways. Lord, as we've worshipped you, Lord, we've seen more of you. God, I thank you that we've come here and we've encountered more of who you are. Lord, I thank you that the scriptures say that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above the Father of lights in whom there is no shifting shadows. Lord, I thank you that we can trust you. Lord, I thank you that we can trust you when you say there's nothing that we could do that would make you love us more and there's nothing that we could do that would make you love us less. Lord, I thank you that we can trust you when you say that it's finished. Lord, I thank you that we can trust you when you say our sin has been paid for. I thank you, Lord, that we can trust you when you look into our eyes and you say you're proud of us. Lord, I pray this morning that you reestablish our perspective. Lord, that you rekindle the fire for rejoicing in our hearts this morning. That, Lord, we leave here as people with an attitude of gratitude. That, Lord, we leave here thankful. Lord, that we leave here focused on what you've done instead of focused on lack. 
Lord, I thank you for the testimonies that are going to come from this family. The miraculous, supernatural testimonies that are going to come from this family as they focus on what you've done and on who you are. Lord, I thank you for the restored relationships. Lord, I thank you that even this year before it closes, debt is going to be paid off. I really believe that. I'm not just saying that. I believe that all year, that this year is a year of cancellation of debts. I believe it and I pronounce it over this family. Lord, I thank you that as we rejoice, we establish a runway for the Holy Spirit to land his life and land resurrection. Lord, I speak resurrection in areas where there's been death and despair. I speak resurrection into the bones that have gone hard, into the hearts that have grown, grown cynical. I speak resurrection and life in Jesus' name. When, when, when there's hearts that have grown closer to disappointment, then they've grown close to the Father's heart. I just, I just speak His voice into your life. Come back home. It's never too late. Come back home. I want to show you my goodness. I want to show you who I am. I want to show you that I'm for you and that I love you. Yeah. In Jesus' name, all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen.